Hello, and welcome to the Summit Church Podcast. Our messages are designed to help teach and equip you on your journey to lead people to follow Christ. We hope that this message will inspire and encourage you, no matter where you are on your journey towards Christ. If you have questions, want to talk, or want to learn more about Summit, visit us at summitniles.com. Thanks for listening. As Bradley said, my name is I'm name is Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here at Summit Church. It is good to be with you. Um, I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to First Chronicles today. First Chronicles 13. That's where we are going to be spending the majority of our time this morning. Um, I was encouraged the last several weeks. Uh, the messages from God's Word that we have had spoken to us and over us. Last week in particular, um, there's a very real answer for trouble, Uh, and His name is Jesus. I said this last week, we're here not because we follow an empty ritualistic religion. We follow and serve a risen King, a King who is very much alive. He's very much alive, and He works in us as much today as He did the moment we were saved, for He is the way, the truth, and the life. That doesn't end. And so He's expanding His kingdom. He's redeeming creation. He's sanctifying us, growing us in holiness as He is holy, and He meets us in our trouble, identifying with us in our need, comforting us in our sorrow. He's refining us to look more like Him. That is an answer for trouble. And he does that, and he, he receives praise then all, through all of those things. He receives praise so that the world might come to know him. And you better believe that he's coming back. You believe that? He's coming back. He's going to come back. He's going to restore all creation. He's going to judge rightly the living and the dead. Revelation speaks to this. It says that he will be riding a white horse when he comes back, and his name is called Faithful and True. And with justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Verse 15, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is our God. This is our God. However, if you let me this morning... The image that our society has of Jesus is not that one. And indeed, those within the church who think they have progressed in their thinking, the image they have of Jesus is a twisted one. And so they look at the gospel accounts and they see an all-you-need-is-love type character who through his calming hand and disagreement with those in authority opens the floodgates for humanistic reasoning and all manner of living. This couldn't be further from the truth. Not only is this a drastic misrepresentation of Jesus in the Gospels, it is a blatant disregard of the whole counsel of Scripture. Enter through the narrow gate, Jesus said, for wide is the gate and broad is the path that leads to to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. 
And so in these days, as the gospel is reworked and becomes almost indistinguishable from worldly philosophy, we understand better what Jesus meant when he said, broad is the road that leads to destruction and narrow the way that leads to life. And in our passage today, we will see the true gospel at play. That a holy presence carries goodness and severity, both real judgment for sin and ultimate blessing for those who walk in obedience. Let's pray again this morning. Jesus, we've come into your presence um, because you have allowed us to. And you are a personal God, and you love us. And the things that challenged us and weighed us down and were, were chains that we couldn't break ourselves out of, you, you came and you died and you rose. And you offered us your life. And you broke those chains of sin and you offered us forgiveness and salvation for those who would believe and follow your way. And so we come to you, the only God who could save. And we lay ourselves at your feet and we ask you to speak to us in a, in a powerful, strong way this morning through your word. So God, reveal yourself through scripture today. May we know more of who you are as we attempt to, to know you. So God, speak this morning. We'll listen. In Jesus' name, amen. So hopefully you've turned in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 13 by now. Um, there's, a, there's a men's Bible study that meets here just right out there in the gathering area at 6 o'clock on Wednesday mornings. I don't always make it because 6 o'clock is 6 o'clock. But I've really enjoyed the times that I have been there and we've been, we've been working through, uh, we're, we just came through the Chronicles and we we're reading through the Bible in a year. Um, and we went through this story, and I had read it in my personal time uh, in the Word as well. Um, and I've read this story so many times, and this is one of the most fascinating accounts of Israelite history. And I think it brings into focus the holiness of God and, and the implications that that has for us. And so as we read that, I couldn't get this out of my mind and my heart, and this is what I felt God had said we needed to work through this morning. So First Chronicles 13 it is. And as always, when we read Scripture, context is important. You know this. And so to set the scene for this chapter that we're going to read into, we pick up at a place in history where Israel has not been following the Lord as he has prescribed. And they have, they've fallen away from him and they've done all sorts of things that he's told them not to do. They've married into other nations. They've given into some idol worship. They're fighting amongst themselves. They're losing in battle to other nations. God had given them a king in Saul, but he has a turbulent kingship he begins by desiring to honor the Lord, but eventually he becomes full of himself, which will then lead to his judgment and his downfall later. So God raises up David, the shepherd boy. He's popular among the people because after he slays Goliath, he becomes a military leader down the road, and his, his military prowess wins him favor with all of the people. And, and Saul becomes jealous, and a whole bunch of family drama follows. And as the leadership of Israel crumbles, they move farther and farther away from the God of their ancestors. And eventually the kingship of Saul comes to an end as he's killed in battle against the Philistines. First Chronicles chapter 10 actually references this death in 13 and 14. It says, Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. That's why he died. He did not keep the word of the Lord 
and even consulted a medium for guidance and did not inquire of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death and he turned the kingdom over to David, son of Jesse. So then that begins to flesh out as he turns the kingdom over to David in 1 Chronicles 11, when all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, he made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. They anointed David king over Israel as the Lord had promised through Samuel. And so here we are at the inception of David's reign as king, and he begins turning the ship, trying to unify the people back towards the Lord, establishing God's laws, and and, and embracing God's desire for justice and obedience. So we read now in 1 Chronicles 13, looking for what God has for us in this text. Verse 1, David conferred with each of his officers, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. He then said to the whole assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you and if it is the will of the Lord our God, let us send word far and wide to the rest of our people throughout the territories of Israel and also to the priests and Levites who are with them in their towns and pasture lands to come and join us. Well, come and join us for what? Here's what he wants to do. Verse 3, let us bring the ark of our God back to us for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. The whole assembly agreed to do this because it seemed right to all the people. So let's pause here for a minute before we continue on. What is this ark of God that he is referencing? Well, the ark of God, the ark of the covenant was a special chest, a box, if you will, that was constructed that it symbolized God's presence and it represented the special covenant God had with Israel that he was their God and they were his people, that, he, that they would live in obedience to him, setting themselves apart, and he would bless them and provide for them, giving them victory in battle, exalting them above every other nation, and obedience to him, and he would cover their every need. I will be your people and you will be my God. So within the ark of God that, that, that represented that covenant was the Ten Commandments, the law that God had given to Moses. And now the lid of the ark itself held great significance. There, were two, there was a cherubim there with two wings, and it was called the mercy seat on which rested the cloud or, or the visible symbol of the divine presence of God. And it was here that God was supposed to be seated, and from this place, He, in the Holy of Holies, as the, the high priest would come in, God would dispense mercy to man when the yearly blood of atonement was sprinkled there. And so because of this, the ark was the most holy of objects that the Israelites had, for it represented the very presence of God. And it should have been within the temple, the spiritual epicenter of Israel, and it was only to be handled under very specific guidelines. This is the ark that we're talking about. And as we have discovered here in the first few verses, the ark was not in their possession. And so David, new in leadership, attempting to return Israel to the Lord, gathers the people and says, let's go get this thing that rightly belongs here. That's the right thing to do, yes? Let's continue reading verses 5 and 6. So David assembled all Israel from the Shihor River in Egypt to Lebo Hamath, to bring the ark of God from Kirath-Jerim. David and all Israel went to Balaam, Judah, Kirath-Jerim, to bring up from there the ark of God the Lord, who is enthroned between the cherubim, the ark that is called by the name. 
Let's pause again here. It's important to know why the ark is in Kirith-Jerim. Why is it there? How did it get there? For it adds richness to our understanding of the text today. Kirith-Jerim was a city. It was about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And many years earlier, the Philistines had conquered the Israelites in battle. Again, the Israelites had been moving away from God. They hadn't been obeying what he called them to. And so he gave them up to the opposing nations who were battling them. God allowed the Philistines to conquer and then, and then capture the ark. Many scholars think that perhaps because the Israelites were perilously close to idol worship when it came to the ark. Israel had begun to attach God himself to the ark, and so had become more focused on the box than the presence that it represented. Now, the Philistines knew the significance of this holy object, and so being in possession of the ark was a mighty blow to Israel. And so the Philistines took it back to their land, and it's kind of humorous as you read this in 1 Samuel 5 and 6. If you, you really should go back and read this. I don't have time to read through all of it. I will do my best to summarize it for you this morning. But everywhere the Philistines took the ark, it caused problems for them. Everywhere it went. They took it back to their temple of their little G god, Dagon. And they, and they, they put it in the temple. And the next morning they came back and their, their statue, their idol of Dagon, had fallen on its face before the ark. And so they said, well, that's not good. So they set it back up. They came back the following morning, and it had happened again. It fell on its face before the ark of the Lord. And this time, the head and the hands were broken off, laying there before the ark of the Lord. In fact, the entire region of Ashad, where the temple was, the people were afflicted by tumors there. And Scripture says that God's hand was heavy upon them. Eventually, they got the picture, and they said, we need to move this to another city. And so they move it to another city in, Israel, or in, in, uh, in Philistine territory, to Gath. And it says the Lord's hand was against that city, and it threw it into a panic, and all the people broke out in tumors. And so they moved it to another city, to Ekron, and the same thing happened. God's heavy hand of judgment and death and panic filled the city. And at this point, it had been seven months where the ark had been in Philistine territory, and they had enough. All of the people were begging their priests to get it out of Philistine territory. Send it back, they said. How do we do this? And so the priest said, put it on a new cart. That's important. Put it on a new cart, they said. That's in 1 Samuel 6, verse 7. And they filled it with gold gifts. And they attached it to some cows. And they sent it off without a driver. And they said, if it goes up to Beth Shemesh where it should be, then we know that it was the Lord who had caused this heaviness on us. And if it goes somewhere else, we know it was just coincidence. So they sent it off without a driver. It ended up in Beth Shemesh. Coincidence? No. And so Beth Shemesh is in Israel. And so the Israelites that were there, they see it arrive and, and they rejoice and they say, the presence of God is back. Again, they had kind of associated the fact that, that God's presence was only attached to the ark. So the God's presence is back. And so they, they chop up the, the cart and they use it to build a fire as a, for a burnt offering to the Lord. All is good now, right? But in 1 Samuel 6, verse 19, it says that God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, the Israelites putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. 
The people mourned because the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them, and the people of Beth Shemesh asked, and this is the key question for today and for all time, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? Who can stand in the presence of this Lord, the holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here, they said. We don't want it. Then they sent messengers to the people of Kirith-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. 1 Samuel 7 and verse 1, it says, The men of Kirith-Jerim then, they came, they took the ark of the Lord, they brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill, and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. And the ark remained at Kirith-Jerim a long time, twenty years in all. So to summarize this, the Israelites lose their way by not following God and coming dangerously close to mistaking the ark for God himself. The Philistines capture the ark, mishandling the holy presence of God, and in turn they experience heavy judgment. They eventually have enough. They send it back to Israel. It's welcomed back, but now the Israelites mishandle the presence of God, and they experience heavy judgment. And so the ark is put away like an old relic in an attic, for years, and as Israel mourns and continues to misunderstand what God calls them to. And so here we are, 20 years later, David, the new king, God's anointed, he's going to set things right. He's going to bring back the ark and turn the people to the Lord. Look at verse 7. Let's finish out the chapter. They moved the ark of God from Abinadab's house on a new cart. Sound familiar? With Uzzah and Ahio guiding it. David and all the Israelites were celebrating with all of their might before God. They were worshiping with songs and with harps, lyres, timbrels, cymbals, and trumpets. Well, we need a good trumpet here on Sunday morning. Caleb, put that on your list. Verse 9, sorry. When they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah. And he struck him down because he had put his hand on the ark. So he died there before God. Verse 11, Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of God that day and asked, How can I ever bring the ark of God to me? He did not take the ark to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And in stark contrast to everything else that we have read, verse 14, the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house for three months, and the Lord blessed his household and everything that he had. So here we are, a young king in leadership desiring to please God and return his people to their Lord, And they go out to get the ark that symbolizes the presence of God. And they put it on a cart like the Philistines. The ark begins to fall. Uzzah reaches out to save it. Wrong thing for the right reason. Wrong reason. God kills him on the spot. Fear washes over David and the Israelites. And they leave the ark at Obed's house. And his family and entire household are immensely blessed. What do we make of an account like this. Several observations and principles I think we can point to, but the bottom line is this. There is both goodness and severity within the holy presence of God. And as we 
have been gifted the very presence of God because of Christ Jesus and through the Holy Spirit, because we have been gifted the very presence of God, it would behoove us to figure out how to rightly hold those things together. In other words, God's holy presence is not to be trifled with, for there is real judgment for sin. But for those who walk in obedience to His instruction, found in His Word, there is within His presence immense blessing to be found. I want to look specifically now at several verses as we observe this text to understand it better. I think there are five pieces here really that lead one into the other that help us get to that bottom line. So in verse 1, we discover our first observation. David, in preparing for this trip, conferred with each of his officers, it says, and he conferred with all of Israel even. And it says, if it seems good to you and if it is the will of the Lord, what great intentions, let us go. And then they went. What did David miss? What did David miss? They didn't inquire of God. They didn't inquire of the Lord. What's mind-bottling is that as David is inquiring of the people and he's gaining support and he openly calls out his predecessor and even says, if it is the will of the Lord, they didn't go ask the Lord. As he's openly calling out his predecessor, we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul, meaning it, it meaning him. We didn't inquire of him. We didn't inquire of the Lord when Saul was in charge. Remember the verse I read earlier that describes Saul's death in wrapping up the reasons why he died? It says he did not inquire of the Lord. So David knows this. He brings it up. says Saul didn't inquire of the Lord in times of need and important decision-making. And so David, here's an idea. Let's not inquire of the Lord before going to get the thing that will remind us to inquire of the Lord before making important decisions. <laughs> That's funny, Travis. So then we witness herd mentality. The whole assembly agreed. It says it seemed right to all the people. Maybe you want to circle that. It seemed right to all the people. And so they went on their way. And as we read, things didn't go well. They didn't return the ark to Jerusalem. Uzzah died. A man lost his life. And because of this, because of this rushed decision that they made. And if we're to look ahead, actually, in chapter 15... As David plans to make another attempt, he admits the problem. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. That's a quote. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. They did not inquire of God. Here's the obvious application here. The Lord should be our first inquiry. Always. The Lord should be our first inquiry. Now, that seems like a throwaway application, but it's not. How often do we run into issues? We have a decision to make. Do we first run to our closest friends or our spouse or our parents seeking wisdom and help rather than first coming to Jesus? Just you and Him in prayer, opening His Word. Now, hear me. There is wisdom found in those who also follow Jesus. We need to seek godly counsel. In, in fact, we're, we're told to do so. But it is no replacement for seeking God first. This story is a perfect example of that. Seeking God first. And when we don't 
seek God first. We open ourselves to all manner of temptation and hurt. The opening verse of the old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, I think captures this sentiment well. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what, ne- oh, what pain, needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. They did not inquire of the Lord. On the contrary, He should be our first inquiry. The second observation flows out of the first. It's the natural progression as things unfold. Because they did not inquire of the Lord, they disobeyed God's instructions. They disobeyed God's instructions. Plain and simple, when we put off really seeking God first, we open ourselves to all manner of temptation and hurt. And this is what ended up happening. The Israelites ended up disobeying God, for they did not inquire of Him. Listen in chapter 15 as David recognizes this. Again, as he's back in Jerusalem, he's planning a second attempt. They disobeyed God's word. In 1 Chronicles 15, 12 through 15, this is what he said. He said to them, David, to all the people and to the the leaders and those who were gathered there, you are the heads of the Levitical families. You and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourselves and bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have now prepared for it. It was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. See, the Levites were supposed to handle the ark. And then what I read earlier, we did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves in order to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And here it is, the Levites carried the ark of God with poles on their shoulders as Moses had commanded in accordance with the word of the Lord. It was there the whole time, in God's word, how to move and to carry the ark. Only the Levites were to handle the ark. Even then, it was supposed to be carried by poles. This was explicitly written in God's law. And you go, come on. Why is that a big deal? Only that family and on sticks versus a cart? We don't know half of God's holiness. I think of a couple chapters earlier as David is running around with his mighty men and he's working things around to, 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 to be placed in this position of, of king. And he's trying to honor the Lord. And, and there's, a, there's a time when the Philistines had kind of encamped against him. And he was kind of with his back against the wall. And he's thirsty. And he says, oh, that someone would go get me a drink from the well in Bethlehem. And so three of his mighty men go out and they break through the enemy lines. They go get water from the well. They come back through the enemy lines and they bring it to David, this water back to David. And they do that out of, out of honor, out of respect, out of recognizing God's anointed in David and that God is holy and he set up this, this king and they're honoring him and serving him. They risk their lives to go do it. And they bring this water back. Oh, that someone would give me some water so I could have a drink. They bring it back to him and David receives the cup and he looks at it and he goes, I can't drink this. 
How could I dishonor these men for what they risked their lives in honoring God? And so he pours it out. The first time I read that, I was like, oh, I would be ticked. But then I go, what does David understand about God's holiness that we don't have a clue about? As you would pour out a drink onto the ground, it was, it was, it was known as an offering, as, as you would a sacrifice what it is that you had before the Lord. He recognized the, the commitment and, and the, the desire that these men had to, to, to honor Him and to honor the Lord. And it so overwhelmed him, recognizing the holiness of God, that he poured it out in front of them. That was free. We, don't, we can't wrap our mind around God's holiness. If he says, carry the ark on poles and not an ark, we should carry the ark on poles, not an ark. It was explicitly written in God's law, and yet they conformed to human wisdom rather than the truth of God. And this is a point that I, I really want to hammer home this morning, and so let me, as pastors often say, let me unpack this. They conformed to human wisdom. The Israelites did. So as we read the text, did you catch the manner in which they moved it? Obviously, I alluded to it earlier. In chapter 13, verse 7, it, what does it say? It says, instead of the Levitical family carrying it, they put it on a new cart. Just like the Philistines' heads. It's the same words, new cart, in 1 Samuel 6. The ideas of the Philistines should have been abhorrent to the Israelites. Because the Israelites were God's holy people. They were called to be set apart. They were, they were to look drastically different than the surrounding nations so that all may know the Israelites were God's people. They had become too complacent with God's ways and too familiar with the world. And they ascribed to human wisdom. They became infected by its ideas and they were practicing its customs. And so they said, the Philistines moved it on a new cart. That seems like a good idea. Let's do that. Do you need the application here to us today? If I look like the world, if I smell like the world, if I act like the world, if I talk like the world, if I obsess over the same shows as the world, if I reason like the world, I'm probably worldly and not set apart. But God's people are called to be set apart. They are set apart by who they follow. They follow in the way that they live. And they live according to what God has said. To act like God, to talk like God, to reason like God. Even if it goes against conventional human wisdom. Live according to God's word, church. Live according to his word. We should be markedly different than the unbelieving world around them, the world around us. The Israelites began looking just like their God-hating neighbors. We should be markedly different. 
And let me just tell you this, that will become easier and more difficult in the days ahead. Do you understand what I just said there? The opportunity to live contrary to the world around you will only increase as we go. Yet the temptation to forego that calling will also increase. Live according to God's Word. The Israelites conformed to human wisdom. They disobeyed God, and then our third observation that flows out of disobedience is they received God's judgment. They received God's judgment. When we read in the Old Testament, it can kind of rub us wrong sometimes when God strikes people down. But it was out of, out of, out of straight rejection, rejection for who God was and what He called them to do, living in, in open sin. Sin cannot be in the presence of God. So they received God's judgment. It says Uzzah died instantly when he touched the ark. This wasn't an isolated event either. In their sin, God had given them over. He had allowed them to be conquered because they weren't following him. And so he gave them over to the opposing nations. And even when the ark was back, finally, many disobeyed by looking into the ark. And so they lost their lives. Uzzah reaching out, it seemed like a simple gesture, only a steadying hand. But it represented something much greater. It represented the Israelites' blatant disregard for the God of ages. Forgetting the sacred responsibility they had been given in caring for this holy object, the presence of God, they ended up mishandling the presence of God. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but it's hard not... Do you see where we're going with this? You have been gifted the presence of God. We have a sacred responsibility as God has gifted himself to us. And in our story, God said, don't touch it. Don't touch the ark. Uzzah's death was a poignant picture of punishment and judgment for unrepentant sin, for a rejection of God and His decrees and His statutes. Negligence, apathy, ignorance, claim what you want. Holiness is not to be trifled with. David and the Israelites didn't take the time to inquire of God or to read His law, and they based their decision on human wisdom, and it cost Uzzah his life, and it became an ugly piece of Israelite history. And that moment was so powerful that that place, it says, received a new name. In verse 11, it says, Perez Uzzah, which means outbreak against Uzzah, meaning God's anger was outbroken against Uzzah. This happened in front of many people. That event had to have been seared in their minds, being reminded that God expects what He demands. Now again, this application may seem obvious enough, but we need to be reminded there is very real judgment coming for sin. There is very real judgment coming for sin. And sin will be paid for whether on the cross or at the end of time. I'd say get in the first boat. 
In fact, Jesus talked about this a lot. He talked about judgment a lot, actually, as He sent His disciples out in Matthew chapter 10 with the good news of the kingdom that He had been teaching and preaching and and bringing up His disciples in and healing people. He sent them out with the message of the kingdom that He was here with grace and truth and forgiveness for sin for all that would follow Him and live according to His ways and not be stuck in empty religion. And He sent them out and said, as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. And if the home is deserving, meaning it accepts your message, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. And in verse 14, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. To shake the dust off of your feet was a sign of separation. To, to remove yourself from the customs and, and practices of where it is that you were leaving. So pious, righteous Jews would do that when they left Gentile territory. They would go, we're not like them. They would shake the dust off their feet. And so Jesus is sending his disciples out to fellow Jews, and he says, go out with this new message of the kingdom with grace and forgiveness for sin that, that you need to humble yourself before God. And Jesus says, if they don't welcome you, or listen to your words, he's not talking about them in particular. He said, when they don't listen to you or your words, they're rejecting me and my words and my message, for I am giving you authority with this. He's talking about himself and his message. He says, shake the dust off your feet. Show them they are willingly rejecting me. Again, God's not sending people to hell. We're on our way there. And he's coming after us saying, here's an, uh, here's, I want to save you. I, I sent my son to, to take your punishment for you. Accept this message of freedom and forgiveness. And people are rejecting it. They're turning away from God. Willingly running straight for separation from him. So that picture of separation is, is a very uh, poignant one. It's right there. And he says it will be more bearable for the Gentile towns that were destroyed for their sexual immorality than for those Jews who choose to reject the living Christ and his gospel message of forgiveness. You see, forgiveness is available. There is forgiveness for those who who trust in Christ and, and obey his word. But for those who disregard the holiness of God and reject his word, ascribing to human wisdom, eternal judgment is their only future. If we continue in the story, we see after this experience of judgment, they ended up repenting of their disobedience. This is a right step. They repented of their disobedience. At first, David was angry, most likely at himself, but also God. Things hadn't gone, gone as planned. The celebratory moment ended in a man's death because of a poor leader, leadership decision on David's part. So he's facing the music, he's angry, he's upset. But eventually that cools and it turns to a rightful fear or an appropriate reverence of and for God. 
So for all the goodness that David had already experienced as God was establishing him as king along the way, David was quickly reminded, not just of God's goodness, but of the severity within God's holiness as well and the importance of following his ways. So David laments, knowing that he couldn't bring the ark back to himself to Jerusalem, where he knew that it had belonged. So he left it at Obed's house and while, while he went back to his palace. And if we follow that timeline out into chapter 15, as we read earlier, he publicly repented, essentially, acknowledging their, their, their lack of obedience. Remember, he said, we didn't do it in the way that God told us to. And in verse 2, he says, Then David said, No one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, because the Lord chose them to carry the ark and to minister before him. So they headed back. This is later. They headed back to Obed's house. They did it in the right way, in accordance with God's word. And in verse 25, David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of units of a thousand went up to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. Verse 26, because God had helped the Levites, because they did it the right way who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Seven bulls and seven rams were sacrificed. The Israelites knew their sin. They went back. They repented. They walked in a new way, in the way prescribed to them by the Lord. And here's what I want you to see at the end of this account. We're going to examine kind of a, a few different pieces, again, of the timeline here. But this is, this is really good news. This is the good news part of this for us. As we've walked through the heaviness so far of this story, out of this story then comes the fifth observation. Great blessing follows obedience. Great blessing followed obedience. So in contrast to the Philistines and to the rest of the Israelites, to Uzzah and to David, the same presence of God which had left tumors, panic, and death in its wake, the same presence that ended Uzzah's life in a severe way filled and blessed Obed's household and everything that he had. Why? Is God unjust? Isn't he treating Uzzah unfairly while showing favor to Obed? Absolutely not. God offers the same option to all who stand before him. Recognize and respond to my holiness and receive the blessing that comes with it. Or reject me in my ways and receive rightful judgment as you run the opposite direction from me. So we can rightly infer here, in contrast to everything leading up to this point, that Obed was a God-fearing man. In spite, and in spite of what he had just witnessed, there was no weariness that we see in the text of him welcoming the ark, for he held proper reverence for God's presence. And for three months, it says, his family enjoyed the overwhelming blessing that comes from the presence of God. We also know, if we read on in Chronicles, that indeed God continued to bless Obed, recording the names of his eight sons along with their sons, alongside of Obed. If you know anything about Scripture, having your name recorded, that's a big deal. Genealogy is a big deal. He was honored because he was a blessed, God-fearing man. He was held in high regard. He and all of his sons and his male heirs that came after him were gatekeepers in God's temple. God immensely blessed Obed. And so he becomes an example to us that God delights to bless those who honor him. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. First or Second Chronicles 16, 9. 
If we continue in this timeline, after David successfully brings the ark back on the second attempt, he properly sets up the Levites and the musicians to worship and minister before the ark. He calls the Israelites back to the Lord. He reestablishes proper statutes in adherence to God's law. The people are rejoicing and they're celebrating and David's dancing uninhibited and they begin to walk in obedience. And in chapter 17, after all this kind of lands, God speaks through the prophet Nathan directly to David, and this is what he says. He says, I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house after me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor." I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. Talk about blessing. But do you know what he's speaking about? Do you know who he's speaking about? He's talking about Jesus. Jesus would come through David's line. So when David and the Israelites beheld his presence rightly, God poured out his blessings, firmly planting them in his goodness. Moreover, God established David's kingdom, setting the scene for the greater David, the Messiah, the true forever king, Jesus Christ, who would become the ultimate blessing for those who walk in obedience to him, you and I. And so they repented, they walked in obedience to God's ways, and God continued to unfold his plan from eternity past to pour out his ultimate blessing through Jesus Christ. Whew, that gets me excited. The sad reality is that when Jesus finally did come to his people, they rejected him. They rejected him. As we read in Matthew 10 earlier, they missed their Messiah who came to free them from the bondage and judgment of sin that had weighed them down for years. So for us today, as we attempt to better know God this morning, what are we to do with all of this? How do we work out the severity and the goodness that we see reflected in God's presence? How do we hold these two things in balance? Again, Exodus 34, God tells Moses when speaking about himself, he says, I'm abounding in love and faithfulness, yet I do not leave the guilty unpunished. That is the obstinate and the unrepentant guilty. In Romans 11, Paul is exhorting Gentile believers, hold fast to their faith. Hold fast to your faith. Live according to God's ways that they may not receive the same judgment given to the Jews who had rejected Christ by denying him as the living word. And in verse 20, this is what he says, but they were broken off because of their unbelief. He's talking about the Jews. They were broken off because of their unbelief. They refused to accept Christ, stuck in their religion, stuck in their ways. They refused the Messiah, didn't want to live according to what he called them to do. They were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. But this is what he says. Don't be arrogant, but tremble. 
For if God did not spare the natural branches, God's chosen people, the Israelites, he will not spare you either. See, Israel had presumed on God's goodness as their indulgent benefactor, and they became too comfortable with their position within his presence. And as a result, they ended up rejecting rejecting Christ, God incarnate among them, Jesus Christ, and clinging again to their family religion. We have Abraham as our father. They turned their nose at the Savior that stood before them and said, we're God's chosen. It was the very goodness of God that had placed them in that position, that had chosen them. And they turned a blind eye to the severity that comes for those who refuse humility before God. And so Paul is warning his Gentile readers, us, in verse 22, consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Those two words are rendered goodness and severity in KJV, the King James. Consider the the goodness and severity of God. Severity to those who fell, but goodness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. J.I. Packer puts it this way as he's working through this passage from Paul. He says, the principle that Paul is applying here is that behind every display of the divine goodness stands a threat of severity and judgment if that goodness is scorned. If we do not let his goodness draw us to God in gratitude and responsive love, we have only ourselves to blame when God turns against us. Tell me you can't see that happening in our world right now. This is why earlier in chapter 2, Paul asks, he says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. I'm going to invite the team to come and join me as we close our time together. You know, I don't, I don't share this message in this passage with you this morning to scare you. That, that is not the point of this passage. But it's hard to put into words the terrible beauty that emanates from God's holiness, a presence that contains severity and goodness, that those two characteristics hang in perfect balance with one another, within God's character, both informing the other. Do do you know that this is a gospel message? This is the gospel message. Did you pick that up in the story? For God's goodness is reflected in his severity towards sin. And, and in his severity towards sin, his severity towards sin should drive our praise 
through the roof when we recognize that that severity was aimed at us because of our sin. And then out of his goodness, he put himself in his own way that we might be saved. But we have to respond in obedience to that. Our belief on display, living by faith according to his word. Remember, this this wasn't aimed at unbelievers. The world rejects Christ. They don't don't know of him. They they hate him. This was for those who, who knew the Lord as a reminder to hold in proper balance. If you have followed Christ, you you understand that you can only see your salvation on the cross once you have seen your damnation on the cross. And so as, as Christians, as we walk, we have to rightly hold those things in balance and be so careful to live according to his word. Because the God of the Old Testament is the God of now. He has not changed. When Jesus came, he said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to to fulfill the law. He didn't come to fulfill the law so we wouldn't have to walk in obedience to the principles there. But he came to fulfill the law in a way that he would cover our, our disobedience of the law and then give us power to obey it in the future. And those who, who truly believe, who have repented, and believe in Christ and have accepted him and, and, and believed in him as their savior, the evidence of that belief is in their faith, is in their obedience. They're walking out. And God says, to those who walk their faith out in obedience, those who have been saved, I will pour out my blessing because my presence is with them. So this message isn't to scare you. It's rather to encourage you. If you have been found in Christ, you are being held by the God of the universe. And he has stood in the way of his own severity out of his goodness to save you. And so keep on keeping on. Walk strong by faith. Hold the line on God's word. Hold the line on God's word. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Paul exhorts the Romans, the the Gentile believers in the chapter right after we were reading in in chapter 12, he says, therefore in view of God's mercy offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and your proper worship. That was where the Israelites missed it. True and proper worship is important. Do not conform to the pattern of the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. What is God's will? It's found in his word. Church, you know that God's presence is not contained within a box or behind a curtain. Rather, it is revealed in Jesus Christ. And for those who repent, and do the work that God requires, and that work is to believe. His very spirit, his presence, comes to reside in you.
God's presence resides in you. So church, as we walk out our Christian faith, we can't, we cannot and should not focus only on his judgment nor only on his blessing. Rather, we must hold them together, letting it increase our awe and our praise of him who knowing his severity towards sin and his goodness blessed us with our Savior, Jesus Christ. So as you walk your faith out, Christian, inquire of the Lord, hold fast to his instruction, walk in obedience, and rejoice in the blessing found within the presence of our Savior. Will you stand and pray with me? O Lord of heaven, God of ages, King of glory, Yahweh, our majesty, King of kings, Lord of lords, holy and true, faithful. God, our words do not begin to describe who you are in the fullness of your holiness. God, we know that you are set apart from us. You are cut from a different cloth. We deserve all of your wrath and your iniquity or our iniquity deserves your wrath. And, and yet you loved us so much that you sent your son Jesus to die for us. That he would be made a sin offering in our stead, in our place, so that we could taste fully the goodness of, of who you are. Oh, what a just God you are. True and holy, having wrath against sin, and yet saving your people from themselves so that you might receive glory and we might be made to look like you. So God, as we offer you our praise here at the end of our time, as we sing that only you are a holy God, only you could accomplish these things, may it be pleasing to you. May you fill us with your presence. May we take your presence out and witness to the world, sharing with them that what you have done for us, you can do for them. God, this is not a message of doom and gloom. It is a message of hope and blessing and revival and awakening and salvation for those who believe. God, we love you. We praise you. We give you our worship now. In Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us for this message from the Summit Church Podcast. Again, if you have questions, visit us at summitniles.com. Now go and be the church in the world.